listening to the sound of the bell makes me think about what we're going to talk about tonight, which is perception. Today we did some work with feeling. We practice feeding the demons. And feeling and perception are connected, of course. And I thought that I'd start by telling you about a sort of shortcut with the feeling work, just by way of a story from my own experience. There was a period of time after my son became a monk and I was very interested in understanding more about Buddhism and I would go up to a bikery monastery and and talk with Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro about my many questions. And I went often. And one, uh, one of my visits happened to coincide with Ajahn Sumedho coming from England to visit there. And I found myself in, in a room in the afternoon in the Dhamma Hall with Ajahn Pasano and Ajahn Amaro and Ajahn Sumedho and only myself talking about the things I came to talk about. And it was a big deal for me because Ajahn Sumedho was the first monk that I really had any exposure to. My son had given me cassette tapes to just give you an idea of how long ago this was. And I would play those of Ajahn Sumedho's talks over and over and over as I drove around uh, working and doing whatever I was doing. And I played the same talk over and over because for me, coming into Buddhism was a big paradigm shift. I mean, that paradigm shift, I came to understand that term in high tech where you go from programming in a linear programming language to using an object-oriented programming language. I know that may not have any um, meaning to you, but it's like your mind has to kind of wrap around a whole new way of thinking. And that's how I felt when I started to really, when I started to listen to the teachings of Buddhism and Ajahn Sumedho's talk. So being there, Talking with the three of them was almost a little more than my system can handle. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a, a pretty important conversation for me, and then I stayed until the evening Dharma talk, and Ajahn Smeo gave a really excellent talk on working with our, our felt experience and being aware in the knowing. And it was interesting because I was I was there for the day and got in my car after the talk to drive back home, three hour drive. As soon as I got into my car, I started having all of these thoughts and feelings about how I said that stupid thing and I shouldn't have acted that way and all this stuff. Up and it was so painful 
and what must they think of me? And this was going through my head all the way home. And I just felt so miserable inside. And I got home, it was really late, and I went to, went to sleep. And I woke up in the morning with that same really horrible feeling. And it occurred to me, you know, I think I'm just going to try to apply what I just made said. I kind of curled up on the bed and I, I went into that feeling in a way that, you know, with, with mindfulness, with awareness, being present with that feeling in my body. And what I had gathered from this talk was to be present with the sensory input in a way that goes beyond the labels. So really being with this whole experience, taking in the sight, the sound, every aspect of sensory experience, and being present with it in this way that's beyond thinking, beyond the labels. And my mind went completely still. And in that stillness, there arose this thought, completely counter to all the mental activity since getting in my car the night before. And the thought was, if they have a negative impression of you, that's their problem. And it changed my felt experience so completely. There was this peace, and there was this like, yes, that's true. And two minutes later, the negative mental proliferation started again. <laughs> and it was fascinating. You know, it's like, I knew that that was true, that I could have gone over, I didn't have any um, bad intentions, or I didn't, you know, didn't really do anything wrong, all that. But that idea that all my worries didn't have a ground, and yet the habit of the mind was to have that anxiety, that negative self-impression, and going over this. But it was, it was such a powerful experience for me to realize that we can choose to reorient the mind and go beyond those words and labels and concepts. And then I remember, I think it was probably a couple of years later when I went to visit England and I was at Amarbati and I was able to talk with Ajahnsamiro again. And I shared this story with him because I wanted to thank him for that talk, what a powerful impact it had on me and to experience what I think he was saying. And when I told him about the thoughts that I had been having about myself and moment, and he started to laugh and he said, I recall being rather favorably impressed. <laughs> And isn't that how it is? It's like one perception, another perception, and 
You know, so much of what we add on to what we sense takes us into an unwholesome place. And how can we start to really become clear about what we're adding? So now we're going to look at perception. And what is the process of perception in Sanya? We can start, I've got a few things, little pieces I want to share from Vikram Nalio's book on the Sakitana Sutta. And I like what he talks about, the sort of definition. He, he translates in some places the word sanya as cognition. So he says, to speak of cognition of an object refers to the act of identifying raw sensory data with the help of concepts or labels, such as when one sees a colored object and recognizes it as yellow, red, or white, etc. Cognition, to some extent, involves the faculty of memory, which furnishes the conceptual labels used for recognition. So that's the most basic level. We see something and we recognize it because of the sanya, the perception. So seeing the smell, you have to have some memory of bell in this shape. If I've never seen a bell like this, I might not even recognize it as a bell. I might say, well, that's some kind of fool or a flower pot or a no. So the, the, the basic idea of recalling something and recognizing that. But of course, we go way past that with our, with our perceptions. And what we start to recognize is that our perceptions are colored by our defilements. Our desires, our aversions, our delusions, and that's where they start to get into trouble. Because it distorts what we're actually experiencing. And that's also where we have the opportunity, because when we get past the, the bare awareness and recognition, that's when we can start to shape our experience, and we can start to understand what are these mental habits that we've gotten laid into our consciousness that we want to bring to full awareness so we can reprogram them. Another thing that was happening for me around that same time when I, would, when I was really trying to absorb what were the Buddhists, what did the Buddha mean by that? <laughs> what were the Buddhists actually teaching? So I was um, as I may have mentioned before, in seminary, and it was an interfaith seminary, and it was very theistic, because all of the other major religions that they were including in that interfaith thing were theistic religions, except Buddhism. Buddhism was, I think, treated a little bit less in that environment because of its uniqueness in that way. I happen to be a, a kind of a faith character, so my you know connection to God was full on. 
and, and in the way of talking in that community it was very much about you know kind of experiencing the presence of God, that kind of thing. But when I started to you know, learn about Buddhism and I talk with Ajahn Pasan or Ajahn Amaro about these things, or and when I was in Thailand visiting my son and I heard his abbot there and gave a Dhamma talk, and you know there are many opportunities to ask questions and. I was trying to understand this non-God-oriented religion. And I started to actually investigate when I'm having an experience. I remember asking my son's abbot, you know, you're, you're telling me that, I don't know if I want to say it this way, in the beginning I thought, you're telling me there's no God. It's not quite the way Buddhism is, but... You know, at least there's no sort of God that's going to save you and be the ultimate end all of this, right? But what is this incredible love that flows through me sometimes? What is that amazing sensory experience that comes through my body that feels like that holy presence? And I said, you know, this, this incredible love comes to me. And he went, yeah. <laughs> and I started to have to think about what am I adding on to what I'm feeling? What am I, what am I adding on in my mental constructs? Because what I knew I needed to do was come back to not what my thought processes had created or my labeling had developed, but what was actually there. And as I went through this investigation about my concept of God and what it meant, I came to the place where I realized that my postulation of God was being held in place by the desire to have a postulation of me. And that that looking to God solidified me as a self, as an entity. And that was its fundamental purpose in my mental constructs. Now at some other point, if anybody's interested in discussing the place of God in the, in the, in the landscape of Buddhism, I'd be happy to do that, but it's not really the talk here. So I hope I didn't add extra confusion or any kind of consternation around that. <laughs> but it's, it's just to say that even those very deeply held beliefs, those collections of ideas, deserve to be investigated with a willingness to see things differently, to look at what's actually there, and to unpack what we've constructed know what's true. So, you know, obviously there's sanya, there's perception in there, there's also sankara, which we're going to talk about tomorrow night, mental formations. But this coming back to basic experience and really looking at what do I add on. Now, I don't want to imply that everything we add on is wrong. Because it isn't. So sometimes what we add, what we 
in our, in our conceiving helps. When my son was in the early days of monastic life, he talked about samana sanya. So this perception of being a samana, being a, a mendicant, a monk, that you, you need to develop what that means in order to live within to it. And that's not a bad thing. We're actually going to be adding things on regardless. The goal here is to know what it is we're adding on and why. I had a friend who used to say, when something happens and you can tell different stories about it to explain it, choose one that makes you feel good. It's actually quite wise. Whether it's something as simple as, okay, that driver terrified me by cutting me off on the freeway and speeding away, I can tell a story about how important it must be that they get to where they're going, maybe somebody's in trouble. Or I can tell another story that just brings up a lot of anger or just, you know, whatever. But you can get the idea from that simple example, and I have no real basis for why so many Dharma teachers use that cutting off on the freeway story, but <laughs> I guess it's something we can relate to immediate felt experience of that. But we have these, these these times in our life, you know, maybe a friend stops wanting to associate with us. And then the stories we might tell ourselves can really tear us down. Or we can tell stories that help generate compassion, caring, understanding, and openness of mind. And, you know, so it, it, it really does matter kind of what goes on as a result of, you know, whatever the experience is, what we add on to it matters. When defilements come in and alter our perceptions, the Buddha talked about these four primary ways that they get altered. And it's thinking something is permanent or satisfying or substantial, meaning and identified with us or beautiful when it's actually the opposite. So getting getting those things distorted is a way that we have, may have wrong view, a way that we misapprehend reality. And this is something we do with our sanya a lot. And we tend to fill in the blanks. And I've noticed this about, for example, when people get into a relationship. A lot of times what happens is that we don't know the person very well yet, but unconsciously we fill in the blanks with all the things we'd like those blanks to be filled with. And then what we're working with is not really getting to know the person, but in perfecting our image of the person. And we can be in relationship for a long time before we realize that that's not actually who they are. And so, again, the idea here is how can we be clear and aware enough to recognize when we're heading things on? Most of this is unconscious. 
we need to bring it to conscious awareness. And we can, we can take it the other direction just as easily. You know, going into a new situation, filling in all the blanks with the things that make us afraid. And to realize that we're filling in the blanks with something. Or can I, can I fill in the blanks with a neutral placeholder? Would be that conscious. You know? So just to kind of give us an idea of the space of sanya. So as you can see from these examples, that sanya not only affects our immediate experience, it also affects how we create our experience. And another example of this is I've come into contact with a number of cases where people perceive that they're being bitten by very small insects that can't be seen, even microscopically. And once that perception gets embedded in the mind, then feeling a little twinge, they, they start to imagine these are bugs, and then they feel more and more twinges until they're just beside themselves. I don't know if you've heard of this kind of thing, but I've, I've now I've, and I've seen a number of these of people, a few people, experience this. And, and sometimes people will go through flea bombing their house and their car multiple times and having all kinds of going through all kinds of stuff and they'll go to the doctors and all of this they keep being told, no, nope, there's nothing here. But the feelings that they're having feel so real and actually what they're experiencing causes them to feel more of those sensations. So because of their mental construct, and then in, in each case that I know of, they get to a point where they decide this isn't real, and they stop. And it's over. So this is just to give a sense of how powerful perceptions are, that they really can influence the creation of our reality. We think we're actually experiencing something when actually we've created the experience. Does that make sense? So it's, wor- it's really worth investigating. What are we actually perceiving? Can we, can we sort that out? And what does it actually mean? Now, one of the most heartening pieces of this is that these perceptions, this way of cognizing, is amenable to training. So we make these things conscious and then we can change the patterns. We can establish new habits. And one way to do this that's really quite important and skillful is to use reflection and contemplation, like the contemplation of the arising and passing away of phenomena. So we can actually start to train ourselves 
to see things as impermanent. How many of you have been doing this? Okay, a number of you. And then you, you know that when you start to just look at whatever is around you and you see it as impermanent, that it starts to change your relationship to it, you start letting go. One time when I was in Australia at a monastery, I said I tied Ajahn, who came there, and Ajahn Lian, and he's known to be an arahant, and he's there for the like for a week or more, I don't know, but gave him talks. And one talk was based on a question of an anagarika asking if he could explain how he went from the beginning to where he is now in the practice. And it was a beautiful talk. And he said that he started by developing concentration as far as you can take it. And then he developed mindfulness as far as you can take it. And then he started to contemplate on the impermanence of everything. And he kind of took us through this whole litany of the things that he was thinking about in terms of impermanence. And he really investigated with us the body. And he said, you know, you can just see every part of the body, how any part of the body can, can fail at any time. So you can go to the hospital and really reflect on all the different ways in which the body can fail. And, and in this constant investigation of impermanence helped to free his mind. And it's really um, that is the, the preparation for insight. The kinds of insight that really change our perception. To really, to see that reality that everything that arises ceases. We, we keep trying to hold things together and make them last, but actually their nature is to fall apart. And that when, when we see that, that reality, that truth, the unexpected result is joy. That kind of joy that's irrepressible. And so it, it's like, this is the key to sort of laying in the conditions, the causes and conditions for letting go the causes and conditions for insight to arrive. There's a beautiful question that came in asking if I could talk about insight, trust, and wisdom. Like, how do you develop the trust that the process works? How do you develop the wisdom? How do you develop the trust that wisdom will arise? And where does wisdom come from? I think the way trust 
and you might use other words for it, confidence or faith. In Buddhism, it develops based on experience. So faith in the Buddha, faith in the awakened mind, that it's possible to awaken, that it's possible to be enlightened, that this really did happen to the Buddha, that it has happened to others, and that there are those who are still walking the planet who have realized at this level. And, and to develop that faith means this kind of ongoing inquiry, investigation, and it helps a lot to meet people like that, to be in their presence, to recognize that they can see into your heart through the things that they help you realize, things you've never talked about. No way they could know without something more than the conventional awareness. And it helps a lot to continue to investigate the teachings and look at what is the edge of my understanding and checking back. What do I have confidence in and what do I not have confidence in with regard to these teachings? What do I understand? What do I not understand? And again, looking at what are we adding? Can I really understand what's actually being taught? What am I adding to it? Confidence in the Buddha, the confidence in the Dharma, the confidence in the Sangha. These are the basic components for stream entry, the first level of awakening, the first level of enlightenment, the level that when the Buddha said, you've done most of the work by then. I think it was, what's more, the, the dirt of the earth and the dirt that's under my fingernail. And the monks say, well, it's the dirt of the earth. And he says, this this much dirt under my fingernail, that's how much more work you've got to do if you've entered the stream. As compared to the earth. That's pretty encouraging. <laughs> and it's also the case that this is available. This is possible. So it's important to know what are the steps I need to take to make that happen in this lifetime. And it takes a real commitment. I want to wake up. I don't want to keep doing this again and again and again. I don't want to keep perceiving in this way that holds me back. I don't want to keep perceiving in this way that keeps me suffering, clinging to things that will fall apart. I want to be free. And what's so amazing about that is that the heart develops in a way that kindness and compassion are way, way, way more vast 
there's a Buddha or not, whether there are arahants or not. But you can recognize it, and there's a temper to it, there's a feeling in it. I mean, when that, when that thought came that said, if those monks are thinking negatively of you, it's their problem. That was so opposite of what I, my mind was doing. It was like totally a left field, right? And yet I can tell, yeah, that's true. This spinning around this whole idea, this is not Dhamma. The Dhamma is in letting go of that. That whole worry about myself and how I show up and how I look and what they think. That worry, that's my problem. And I just let go of that. And I recognize that there's something so much richer to understand. That there's a peace that can be experienced and cultivated that's beyond whether or not people like me or what they think of me. It's an ongoing moment by moment cultivation. The mind can turn at any time. Like if I come if I come to this situation wanting something from you, wanting to gain something from this, wanting to have some kind of acknowledgement, I ruin it. The Dalai Lama actually said that in front of thousands of people. I was in San Jose and probably the biggest biggest room I've ever been in my life. I think there were 10,000 people in that room. He sat up there and he was teaching this wonderfully simple teaching about eight things that I can't tell you what they were right now, but they were all wonderful. And he said, if I, if I have a thought of wanting to gain something from this, I ruin it. I ruin it. This has to be pure. And that purity is something we learn. And then if that thought, that adventitious defilement gets in there, then we catch it and we say, no. No. No guilt. There's no guilt in Buddhism. I don't know if you've noticed that. Westerners lay it over the top. We plaster it on there. Again, this is what we're adding. We add guilt. And we do it unconsciously. And it's, you know, whatever these things that are part of our conditioning, we need to let them come into the light of day so we can see them for what they are. Buddhism doesn't believe that guilt is a positive quality or experience. Instead of guilt, I like Ajahn Brahm's way of talking about it. You see AFL method. 
acknowledge, forgive, and learn. No matter what it is that we've done. No matter what we've done, there is a path of spiritual recovery. And in Buddhism, it's not because somebody's going to save you from it. Somebody's going to forgive you for it. It's because of what you do with it. So what do we do when we've done something that's really hurtful? Well, the Buddha said that when we, when we do something that causes suffering, we need to add so many things that cause happiness. He said it's like you put a tablespoon of salt in a glass of water, it's pretty salty, but if you put it in the whole lake, it doesn't mean a thing. So there's ways of recovering. And it's a recovering that heals the heart. And it's not something you owe, it's something you do out of your desire to heal and love and care for without the guilt, without the unhealthy regret. Knowledge, forgive, and learn. And so much of what we what we do that causes suffering for ourselves and others comes out of our ignorance. It comes out of those defilements that are unknown, misunderstood, unnamed, unclear to us. And as we make things clear, we bring them to our conscious awareness and we work with them, we cause less and less trouble. And we become more and more happy. You don't have to like work, 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 and then finally come straight in the tree and now I gain something. It's not like that. It's gradual and it keeps improving. The more we immerse ourselves in the practice. And the practice is every aspect of the noble evil path. So sometimes I think, which one is my weakest link? in my concentration practice, or do I have to do something with my livelihood, or maybe I've got to work on the speech, or whatever it is. But it's like, to make that investigation with a kind of joy, like I'm going to buoy up the part that I haven't been really giving enough attention to, instead of a, oh my gosh, I'm so bad. Don't do that. It's not wholesome. And even though I do do that, <laughs> and then I go, wait a minute, <laughs> that voice isn't helping. That voice, hmm, I need to tell my, my reptilian brain a different story. Those primitive parts of the brain believe what we tell it. I've said this before a couple times this week. It's a bit, they believe it. I just heard somebody say, you know, there's the reptilian brain, there's the mammalian brain, and then there's the more recent added cerebral cortex. And what he said was, as far as he could tell, the main job of the cerebral cortex is to make excuses for the other two brains. <laughs> but what's really important is to see what am I really doing? with my mind? What am I really telling myself? What am I really feeding myself? What are the perceptions I have of myself and of others? 
of situations? And how can I expose those perceptions and understand whether they're based in wisdom or they're based in some kind of habit, some kind of conditioning from the past? So that question is, what is wisdom? I used to ask that. What is wisdom and who's got it? And as I was growing up and I looked at the kind of people that are respected and adored, like sports figures and actors, and I'm like, this is not doing it for me. I remember a very sweet moment when a monk in England was talking to a group of school children. And he was sitting there uh, in front of this huge Buddha statue behind him in the sala in the dining hall. And he was asking them who their heroes were. And then he said, my heroes, that Buddha. <laughs> and he thought, wow, that's pretty neat. You know, like, what do we, what do we look up to? And somebody asked earlier one of the questions about bowing. Why do we bow to the shrine? And one of the things I didn't say is, is what Ajahn told me early on when I asked him, and I said, I said, I bow when I'm here, but I don't bow at home. I feel a little, I felt a little hypocritical. And I wasn't quite sure how I felt about all that bowing. I mean, I grew up in a Protestant tradition, and it's like, you don't bow to anything. <laughs> it's not appropriate to be bowing to metal objects. And of course, it doesn't have to do with that. It's about, I can perception. And what Ajahn says, this is about giving respect to what's worthy of respect, what deserves respect. And that sent me off into really reflecting on what do I think deserves respect? It's the inquiry that brings the wisdom. It's not what I tell you or what he told me. It's like what is going to send you off on an investigation that's going to bring you to a place where you learn something, you see something, you get something that you haven't gotten before that awakens your heart, that brings you peace, that flips you out of some pattern that you have that brings you down, that keeps you spinning. And that was a wonderful adventure. What deserves respect? And that's the kind of thing that builds that faith. Faith in the awakened mind. Faith in the truth of the way things are. What is the truth? Faith in, in purity. The opportunity to live purely according to precepts that guide our actions, our conscious thoughts, our intentional thoughts, and our words in a way that we can feel uplifting. So somebody asked me today, how can we bring these wholesome beneficial attitudes into the heart or into the mind if we haven't gained insight? Can't reflect on the wonderful experiences we've had because they're not there yet. What do I do? Then reflect on generosity. 
the ways you've given, reflect on keeping the precepts. Today I didn't intentionally fill in anything. Today I didn't intentionally take anything that wasn't given. And so on. And these, these are the positive things that help to lay in a positive perception of who you are. And who you are becoming. I don't know, it's always about don't become anything, but in a way we have to become something before we can be nothing. It's going to be that's something healthy, that's something um, positive. So there's this beautiful tradition in Sri Lanka where through one's life you keep a record of the good that you do. The places where you've given, the generosity that you've given, the ways you've helped people. And then when you die, someone reads, when you're dying, someone reads that out. So that that's where your mind is at the time of death. In all of the good. So when I first heard about that, I got myself a notebook and I sat there with a blank page and I couldn't think of a thing that I did that was good. Now, this is seriously toxic Western conditioning. What perceptions are we carrying about ourselves? And how are they limiting us? This is really important to understand. There's so much good in each of us. There's so much potential. The whole potential of what it means to be a human being that we can awaken. One time I was in India at Gaya at the Bodhi tree. And my son um, and I were there together and he was... So my son isn't a monk anymore just to get that clear. He decided to leave the robes a couple years ago but we were there in his monk and I was in white robes and he saw this monk like a ways away and he said, Look, I, I know that monk. Come quick, come quick. I want you to meet him with Ajahn Sancha. So we went over and this monk was free. This such a beautiful presence and, and he said, I love being this is where a human being woke up. A human being like you and me woke up here. I love being here. <laughs> and so we, we can remind ourselves that we share that with the Buddha. We share that not being awake and that potential to awaken. We share that time of not really getting aging, sickness, and death. And then at some point, getting, I'm mortal. My parents are mortal. My children are mortal. I am aging. Getting it. We share that with the Buddha. We share 
fascinating that there's suffering going on around and around again and again and again. And if we can bring up the aspiration to share that desire to find a way out, then we're on our way. And to cultivate that desire, nurture that desire, and work towards destroying the dream. And develop the trust. Develop the knowledge and wisdom of what's wholesome and what's not wholesome. And the energy to drop the unwholesome and pursue the wholesome with as much gusto and delight and curiosity as you can muster. And it's not too late. And no matter what we think, that perception of, like, that's all I want to do, and I'm so messed up, and blah, 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 you don't know that. That's something you're adding on. Perceptions are the chief instigators that label things within and without. So we have to be aware of their arising and disbanding. Once we're aware in this way, perceptions will no longer function as a cause of suffering. In other words, they won't give rise to any further thought formations. The mind will be aware in itself and able to extinguish these things in itself. So we have to stop things at the level of perception. If we don't, thought formations will fashion things into issues and then cause consciousness to wobble and waver in all sorts of ways. But these are things we can stop and look at, things we can know with every mental moment. If we aren't yet really acquainted with the rising and disbanding in the mind, 
we won't be able to let go. We can talk about letting go, but we can't do it because we don't know yet. As soon as anything arises, we grab hold of it, even when actually it's already disbanded. But since we don't really see it, we don't know. So I ask that you understand this basic principle. Don't go grasping after this thing or that, or else you'll get yourself all unsettled. The basic theme is within. Look on in. Keep knowing on in until you penetrate everything. The mind will then be free from turmoil. Empty, quiet, aware. So keep continuous watch of the mind in and of itself. And you'll come to the point where you simply run out of things to say. Everything will stop on its own, grow still on its own. Because the underlying condition that has stopped and is still is already there. Simply that we aren't aware of it yet. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.